Well, good morning, everybody. Um, happy Sunday to you, the Lord's Day. Um, grateful we can gather, as Han said, and just let me add my greetings to you, to you, and to his. Um, I want to invite you to Daniel chapter four today, and uh, we're concluding uh, really an extensive look at the subject of humility. Um, the necessity of it, the benefit of it. We talked uh, several weeks ago of uh, Asa, king of Judah, hearing the words that the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth, seeking the man whose heart is completely his, that God might show himself strong on his behalf. So that high whole idea of really living in a heart-style way that attracts the big blessing of a big God, uh, releases his heart to benefit his people. Um, and then uh, we talked last week about the uh, importance of humility in heart that also attracts the support and blessing of God. And the big idea that we started with several weeks ago now is that God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. We started in James chapter 4. He gives grace, powerful assistance to the humble. On the other hand, he's actively opposed to the proud. So we began a journey to consider how to be humble. If humility matters, and here's the, uh, the truth I wanted to punctuate for you throughout these weeks, is humility is a choice you make. It's a daily choice you make. It's a throughout-the-day choice you make. Humility is a choice you make, not a gift you receive. Humility is something you do, you choose to do. Last week, we looked at humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Clothe yourself with humility. Um, and that is a choice. And you humble yourself under the mighty hand of God by submitting to his sovereignty, by uh, trusting in his ability, by hoping in his timing, and ultimately expressing that conviction, that humble conviction about who you are and who God is, it manifests itself in this choice to cast your care upon him, recognizing that he cares for you. So we, we talked about humbling yourself. And maybe another way to say it is if you don't choose to submit to his sovereignty, trust in his capacity, hope in his timing, cast your care on his capacity, it's proud. And pride brings dishonor. Proverbs 11.2, when pride comes, then comes dishonor. Proverbs 15.25, the Lord will tear down the house of the proud. Proverbs 16.5, everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. An abomination, repulsive. Um, assuredly, the wise man says, he will not go unpunished. Uh, pride goes before destruction. A haughty spirit, a lifted up spirit, lifted up eyes, lifted up head, self-elevating. So a haughty spirit goes before stumbling. A man's pride, Proverbs 29, 23, will bring him low. But on the other hand, a humble spirit will retain honor. So today I want to finish up, humble yourself. Daily choices, throughout the day choices that invite the big blessing of God who says, I'll show myself strong on your behalf. 
I give grace to the humble. I honor the humble. I'm not opposed to the humble. I'm a powerful assistant to the humble. So I want to invite you, if I haven't already, to look with me at Daniel chapter 4. I'm going to give you six things today. So six ways to humble yourself. A choice you make today, a choice you make tomorrow, a choice you'll make Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, because naturally we are self-interested, self-exalting, and humility is self-lowering. It's lowering yourself. So I want to talk about how to humble yourself daily. I want to give you the final six things on how to be humble, the choices you need to make. And the first one is humble yourself by remembering, not forgetting. Remembering who is God and not forgetting who is not. Remembering, not forgetting. The example for this is twofold. Humble yourself in glory. First example, Nebuchadnezzar. We highlighted this initially when we talked about what pride was. I want to go back to Nebuchadnezzar because he's the kind of the ultimate example of pride in glory. A lack of humility when you are lifted up by blessing, achievement, uh, attaining good things. And then we're going to look at humility and difficulty. And we're going to go to Job. Because in both cases, those men were taught a lesson. Nebuchadnezzar was taught the lesson of humility in glory. Job was taught the lesson of humility in difficulty. And I'm just going to highlight some things so we can get through today because I want to get finished with this section. But we're in Daniel chapter 4. And in verse 28, you remember this, and so I'm just going to highlight it. Nebuchadnezzar received a dream. That dream was interpreted by Daniel. The essence of the dream, verse 25, you will be driven away from mankind and your dwelling. This is God to Nebuchadnezzar. You will be driven away from mankind. Your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven periods, seven years of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High Till you recognize, which means you didn't recognize this, which is the key to this principle. You didn't remember. You didn't recognize who is the ruler over the realm of mankind, and you needed to recognize that he bestows it on whomever he wishes. And then that reality was fulfilled beginning in verse 28. And I'm just going to highlight some things. All this happened to Nebuchadnezzar before the king. Twelve months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. So listen, he's been told by a dream that he needs to humble himself. But he doesn't humble himself. Therefore, God humbles him. So 12 months go by, verse 30, here's the expression of pride. The king reflected and said, is this not Babylon the great? Now, listen, Babylon was great. We talked about it. 56 miles of walls, 250 feet high, 25 feet thick. Uh, There were towers built on those walls. Um, 
there were they they were four hundred and fifty feet high. Um, there were a second wall, 75 feet in from the first wall, that uh, was also high and thick. You had a, a, a the Euphrates, a half mile wide, running through the city. You had the hanging got back, uh, gardens of Babylon. You had a, a bridge that uh, went across the the river. Uh, you had golden images made of 50,000 pounds of pure gold. You had temples. You had the most magnificent palace in the world. Babylon was great. It was the greatest city in the known world. And the man who was king of Babylon was looking out over that city and he was reflecting. He was thinking. He reflected and said, is this not Babylon the great? Now, that's not a bad statement. This is where his trouble began, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty, pride. And while the word was in the king's mouth, a voice from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you. And you will be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You'll be given grass to eat like cattle and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize this is God humbling by helping him recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Immediately, verse 33, the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle. He became like an animal. Began eating grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven because he's outside until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers, nails like bird claws. Verse 34, so he's made like an animal. So he can recognize what he had forgotten, what he'd actually never seemed to really know. Verse 34, but at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, so seven years go by, seven years of humbling, I raised my eyes toward heaven, my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever." For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. In other words, he's sovereign. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. He's eternally sovereign. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. But he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? Why? Because he's God. He's sovereign. He's king. He's authoritative overall. Verse 36, at that time, my reason returned to me. My majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom. My counselors, my nobles began seeking me out. So I was reestablished in my sovereignty and surpassing greatness was added to me. This is because he was humbled. And in his humility, God does or did what God does. He elevates, he exalts. Verse 37, here's the key final verse that I want you to undeniably see. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are true, 
his ways are just. Now watch the end of verse or chapter four. And he is able to humble those who walk in pride. Humble yourself or God will humble you. Humble yourself means remembering who is God and who is not. Who is a man and who is not a man. Seeing yourself as small, seeing God as big. Humble yourself by exalting the king of heaven, by remembering who is God and who is not. Here's a way to start your day. On your knees, head bowed, looking up. That's what Nebuchadnezzar did when he was humble. Looked up, praising and honoring God for who he is, his sovereignty, his authority, his capacity, his veracity, his works are true, his fidelity, his ways are just. Your need for humility in light of his great glory. Difficulty can bring also the need for humility. Nebuchadnezzar experienced great glory and powerful achievement, advancement. God had to humble him because he didn't humble himself. I want you to go over to Job chapter 38. Actually, let's go to Job chapter 40. And you know the story of Job. Exalted among men, he suffered loss. He's in difficulty. His friends come around. He he lost his children. Uh, He lost his, his wealth. He ultimately lost his health. He had friends come by. They sat with him, and they started to talk with him and really accuse him of enduring difficulty because of his lack of integrity. And Job wrestles back and, and declares with confidence his integrity. And he contends with God. In essence, Job is wrestling with God. This is not right. I'm a good man. I'm a righteous man. He rehearses in chapter 31 his lifestyle of integrity. And housed in that is, this isn't right. What is happening to me is not just. And God confronts Job with some relevant thoughts about, I'm God, you're not. Job's in difficulty, not like Nebuchadnezzar lifted up in glory. And I want you to see chapter 40, verse 6. Well, let's let's read a little sooner than that. Let's give you a little bit of a context. Chapter 40, verse 1. The Lord said to Job, Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. Then Job answered the Lord. So God's confronting Job about his, this is not right. What's happening to me is not just. I'm a good man, and these are not good circumstances. And they weren't good circumstances. Verse 3, then Job answered the Lord and said, and this is his humbling of himself, behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? 
I lay my hand on my mouth once I have spoken and I will not answer. Even twice, I will add nothing more. Now, why did Job say that? Well, because in chapter 38, he got a lesson from God about God. And God didn't make Job an animal or animal-like to learn this lesson. See, because God humbled Nebuchadnezzar by making him act like an animal. Job is going to be humbled by God, by God asking him if he can make an animal act, if he can control nature, if he can do what God can do. Notice what it says, chapter 38. The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, and this is in response to Job's, this isn't right. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Verse three, now gird up your loins like a man. I'm God, you need to remember you're a man. Verse four, and I'm gonna highlight some verses, what God does. In essence, what God does is, I'm reminding you who's God and who isn't. I'm reminding you who God is and what God can do, who you are and what you can't do. Verse four, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Verse 12, have you ever in your life commanded the morning and caused the dawn to know its place? Verse 16, have you, Job, as a man, entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Verse 17, have the gates of death been revealed to you or you have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Verse 22, have you, Job, as a man, entered the storehouses of the snow or have you seen the storehouses of, the, of hail? Verse 31, Job, can you bind the chains of the Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Those are constellations. Can, can, you, can you govern them? Verse 32, can you lead forth a constellation in its season and guide the bear? a name for a constellation, with her satellites. Verse 34, Job, as a man, can you lift up your voice to the clouds? Verse 35, can you send forth lightnings that they may go? Job, verse 39, do you know the time the mountain goats give birth or observe the calving of the deer? Job, verse 19, do you... Do you give the horse his might? Do you clothe his neck with a mane? Well, let's go back even to verse 13. The ostrich's wings flap joyously with the pinion and the plumage of love. Can, can, can you cause animals to act? Verse 26, is it by your understanding as a man that the hawk soars? Verse 27, is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high? Job, I humbled Nebuchadnezzar by making him act like an animal. Now, Job, I want to humble you by asking you if you can make an animal act, if you can make nature do anything. Why are you contending with me? I am God, and you are not God. And that's why Job in verse 
3 said, or verse 4, chapter 40, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth once I have spoken, and I will not answer. In other words, humility silences itself. It closes its mouth. It opens its ears to listen to the God who is God. And it bows in humility to the one who is worthy. God goes on to say, and it's interesting in chapter 40, I'm just highlight this. The Lord answered Job out of the storm. Now gird up your loins like a man. Because he's emphasizing something. You're a man, I'm God. You, I function this way, you can't do any of those things. I will ask you, and you instruct me. Will you really annul my judgment? Will you condemn me that you may be justified? What's he referring to? Job's fundamental thought, this is not right. Your pride, Job, has provoked you in frustration and in difficulty to conclude that what's happening to you, which is governed by my, my sovereignty, just like I govern the animals and I govern the natural world, it has prompted you to say, this is not right. And you know what that is? Not right. That's an expression of pride. Verse 9, chapter 40, do you have an arm like God? And can you thunder with a voice like his? Answer to that, no. You can't act powerfully like God, nor are you lifted up in majesty like God. Verse 10, God says, adorn yourself with eminence and dignity. Clothe yourself with honor and majesty. Act like me. You can't do what I do. You don't have what I have. Have you forgotten who you are and who I am? You are man. Act like a man should act in recognition of who God is and how God acts. Verse 11, pour out the overflowing of your anger. Now watch this. And look on everyone who is proud and make him low. That's what I do. I deal with the proud and I humble them. Look on everyone and tread down the wicked where they stand. I deal with iniquity, I deal with pride, I deal with wickedness. I'm God, you are not God. And then he speaks of behemoth in verse 15, his power among the creatures, that's maybe a crocodile or an alligator. Verse 41, Leviathan, can, can you, this, this powerful animal, he looks, verse 34 of chapter 41, he looks on everything that is high, this powerful sea creature. He is king over all the sons of pride. In other words, something God has made, the bigness of it, the power of a created being displays the fact that we ought to humble ourselves. Verse 42, Job answered the Lord and said, and here's the fruit of humility. So number one, it's a shut mouth. Number two, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I'm acknowledging who's God and who's not, who's sovereign and who isn't, who has power and who doesn't. 
Verse 3, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. I'm, I'm humbling myself. I'm admitting I've gone beyond the boundaries of being a human being. I've intruded on a place that belongs to you. I've acted as if I am God, and I possess none of the attributes of deity. Verse 4, hear now, and I will speak. I will ask you, and you instruct me. I'm shutting my mouth. I'm opening my ears. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, verse 6, I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. Repent of what? acting like I'm God and you're not, because I refused to acknowledge you as God in my difficulty. This is not right. Closing my mouth is humbling myself. Opening my ears is humbling myself. And bowing down in repentance, I repent in dust and ashes, is a graphic way of saying, I get it. I was wrong in assuming your role. I am humbling myself and I'm acknowledging your God and I am not God. Humble yourself. Whether you're enjoying the privileges and blessings of great glory, exaltation, success, prominence, prestige, that's Nebuchadnezzar. Don't forget. Who gave that, who sustains that, and who did that? Deuteronomy chapter 8, God gives you the power to make wealth. God is the giver of every good. Han prayed it at the beginning. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights, the heavenly bodies. And with him, there's no variation or shadow of turning. It all comes from a good God. Here's how a Christian ought to humble themselves every day, by acknowledging who is God and who is not. And if it's in difficulty, it's acknowledging it by saying, listen, I accept this from your hand. It's not saying, this is not right. You don't have the right to do this. It's remembering God has a right to do whatever he chooses to do as God. Maybe as an encouragement to humbling yourself, you could take the advice of the psalmist who in Psalm 8 said, when I consider the heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have ordained, when I look at nature, when I look at the the, the magnitude and the majesty of the universe, this, this space, these stars, these heavenly bodies, and And, and, you know, it's incomprehensible how far away and how large the universe. And David says, when I look at that, this is my conclusion. I say, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care about him? I see myself correctly. Here's an encouragement, kind of a practical application to advance humbling yourself. Find ways to get small before God. So you don't have to be made small. Get outside, look up, get around a big tree. I love the sequoias. It's a good place for humbling. Big trees make you feel by calibration 
your smallness. When you look up into the heavens, which are, are, are measureless at some level, it's a calibrator. Get in a position, big trees, where you feel small. Acknowledge God as God and recognize that you're a man, just a man. Turn over, if you would, please, to 1 Corinthians for the second humble yourself. So the first humble yourself is remembering who is God and who is not, acknowledging that, whether it's in glory or in difficulty. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, and here's the second installment on humbling yourself, a choice you need to make. Humble yourself by acknowledging not boasting. Acknowledge the giver of your gifts, your capacities, your abilities. Acknowledge the giver of your gifts. Don't boast as if you're the origin of those gifts or accomplishments. Point to him, the giver. Don't point to yourself, the receiver. Now, just quickly, the backstory on the Corinthians, pride and prejudice. They were finding pride by elevating particular gifted teachers and associating themselves with those teachers. And they would say, hey, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, Peter. They would elevate teachers in pride, and they would associate themselves with them to elevate themselves. And Paul, addressing that proneness to pride, challenges the Corinthian church by saying, Listen, we're just servants. Those of us that are taught teachers, those of us that are gifted communicators. He says in chapter 3, verse 5, what then is Apollos? And he was a very gifted, eloquent orator, according to Acts. And what is Paul? Verse 5, chapter 3, servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord, key word, gave opportunity to each. And then he goes on to say, look, Apollos watered, but God caused the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything. In other words, it is servants gifted by God to do work on behalf of God, but it's God who's the worker, God who's the doer, verse 7 or 6. God causes the growth. Neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God causes the growth. You are, we are God's fellow workers, verse 9. We are God, you are God's field. You're God's building. In other words, not us. It's God. And he says in chapter 4, kind of leading to the verses we're going to look at, let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Listen, When you look at me, the Apostle Paul, if you're looking at Apollos, if you're looking at Cephas, Peter, any other gifted teacher, John MacArthur, you're looking at a servant of God. You're looking at a steward, not the master, but the the steward, the entrusted one responsible to do the work of the master. Verse 6, now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes. In other words, I'm applying this figure of servanthood and stewardship. I'm applying it to myself and Apollos for your sakes. Why? 
I'm telling you, I'm just a servant. He's just a servant. He's a waterer. I'm a planter. God's the grower. So that in us, you may learn not to exceed what is written so that no one of you will become arrogant, puffed up in behalf of one against another. Puffed up, pride, arrogant, pride. You don't exceed, you don't, you don't say more about yourself or what is written in the words of God than you ought to say. But in humility, you see yourself as you should, you see the gifted teachers as you should, and you see the word of God as you should. Now look at verse seven. This is the key verse in this particular humble yourself idea. For who regards you as superior? What do you have? Superior meanings lifted up. Who looks at you like that? What do you have that you did not receive? I mean, what capacities do you have? Gifted teacher, gifted thinker, gifted communicator, gifted whatever. What do you have that you haven't received like a gift? And if you did receive it, here it is. Why do you boast as if you had not received it? Here's what humility does. It recognizes the giver. And it doesn't boast in the receiver. It acknowledges God as the giver. So if you're smart, if you're gifted, if you're talented, whether you can sing or run fast, jump high, whether you have the gift of, of leading or uh, you have capacities that elevate you, acknowledge who gave you those gifts. If you are considered superior, what do you have that you haven't received? Nothing. And if you've received it like a gift, why do you boast in it? Pride elevates self as if self is the source of its own giftedness. 1 Corinthians 4, 7 says this, and this is how you humble yourself. Acknowledge the giver of your gifts. Don't boast as if you're the origin of your accomplishments and capacities. Point to him. Don't parade or point to yourself. Humble yourself. Number three, turn over to Luke chapter 14. Humble yourself by choosing the last or the least, not the first or the best. This is a parable that Jesus told. It's familiar. I just want to punctuate it. Because humility involves choosing the last, not the first, the least, not the best. Jesus told this parable to the invited guests. This is Luke chapter 14, verse 7. When he noticed how they had been picking out the places of honor. Okay, so they were making choices. They were picking out the best places, the first place. And this is what Jesus said to him. Here's the parable. I want to tell you a story. When you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, the best and the most, the first, lest someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by him. And he who invited you both shall come and say to you, give place to this man. And then in disgrace, you proceed to occupy the last place because all the seats are taken. Now the only thing left is the worst seat. Verse 10. 
But when you are invited, go and recline at the last place so that when the one who has invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will have honor in the sight of all who are at the table with you. Look at verse 11. For everyone who exalts himself by picking the first, by choosing the best, will be humbled, lowered. He who humbles himself by choosing the last shall be exalted, elevated. Turn over to Genesis chapter 13. I'm going to give you an Old Testament illustration of this. This is Abraham, but here's, here's the idea. This is, this is what humbling yourself involves. I choose the least, not the best. I say to you, if I'm humble, you pick first. You take the big one. You take the best one. You choose. I'll defer. Genesis chapter 13, an example of that, both the humility and the blessing that's attached to it. Genesis 13, you remember there was conflict. This is Abram and his nephew Lot. And they were traveling together. Their flocks were together. Verse 8, so Abram said to Lot, please, and there was strife between the uh, caregivers of Lot's livestock and the caregivers, the shepherds of Abram's livestock. And Abram, in order to deal with that strife, says in verse 8, Abram said to Lot, please let there be no strife between you and me, nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen. We're brothers, we're family. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate for me from me. If to the left, then I will go to the right. Or if to the right, then I will go to the left. In other words, you pick. Out of all this land, you pick first. And Lot, verse 10, lifted up his eyes and saw all the valley of the Jordan, and it was well watered everywhere. And this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord. That's how the land looked that Lot was looking at. Like the land of Egypt as you go to Zoar, which is fertile and green and lush. Verse 11, so Lot chose for himself all of the valley of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed eastward, and thus they separated from each other. Verse 12, Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled in the cities of the valley and moved his tents as far as Sodom. Now look at verse 14. So here's here you have Abram, the older, but in humility says to his nephew, you pick. I'll settle for what you don't choose. And this is what God does. Verse 14, and the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. For all the land which you see, I will give to you and your descendants forever. I'll make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. Watch verse 17. Arise, walk about the land through its length and breadth, for I will give it to you. Lot chose the best, but God gave Abram the most. Verse 12, Abram settled 
God chose, and that settled it. Because God honors and exalts the humble. He gives grace to the humble, but to the proud, he humbles. So humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Humble yourself by choosing the last, not the first. Choosing the least, not the best. So don't choose the things that elevate you in status. That's what that's sitting at the front of the table. That's elevating your status. I'm somebody. So don't choose the things that elevate you in status, place, maybe clothes, maybe jewelry, things that elevate you. Humble yourself. Let others pick first. Let them have the best. Because that person who humbles themselves enjoys the blessing and benefit of God. Number four. This is Luke chapter 18. Humble yourself, number one, by remembering, not forgetting who is God and who is not. Number two, by acknowledging and not boasting, acknowledging the giver of your gifts, not boasting as if you were the origin of those gifts. Number three, by choosing the last, not the first. Number four, humble yourself by admitting, not denying. Humble yourself by admitting and confessing your failure. Don't justify and deny your faults or your sin. Humble yourself by taking responsibility for sin and failure. This is Luke chapter 18, and we're going to see humble yourself in this passage. And this is the contrast between the proud Pharisee and the humble penitent. Luke 18, verse 9. Again, another parable. Jesus told this parable to certain ones, and here's the heart of pride, who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. So a proud person trusts in themselves and they view others with contempt. In other words, I am better than you. You are nothing. You show disrespect to others. You don't share my status. You don't share my elevated position. You don't share my religious convictions. The parable involves somebody who trusts in themselves and views others with contempt. That's what pride does. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax gatherer. Now, the Pharisees were a very elite group committed to the law of Moses, which is not a bad thing. What's bad about that is the heart that was displayed in their expression of that, a heart of pride, a heart of self-righteousness. So you have a Pharisee and a tax gatherer someone who was maligned and despised among the people of Israel because they gathered taxes for Rome. Verse 11, the Pharisee stood and was praying thus, I like this, to himself. He's praying to himself, not really a prayer to God. It's a soliloquy of self-praise. It's a soliloquy where he praises himself and he slanders others. He prays to himself, God, I thank thee, that I am not like other people, 
swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax gatherer. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. Now, God is only named once with the words, I thank you, and then the rest of the prayer is about himself. I is used three times. It's a me emphasis. His real meaning was to praise himself to God rather than thank God for himself. He's not thankful for being righteous as much as he's being alone in his self-righteousness, his goodness. The proud, the Pharisee, self-righteous, focusing on what he does. Verse 13, but, adversative, the tax gatherer, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, this sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, Watch verse 14, for everyone who exalts himself in self-righteousness, contempt for others, shall be humbled, but he who humbles himself shall be exalted. One man humbled himself and one man didn't. Humility, humbling yourself, is doing what this tax gatherer did, admitting his failure. One justified himself by overlooking his failure. That's the Pharisee. How did one humble himself? By embracing and admitting his failure. How did he do that? Number one, he humbled himself before others. Look at verse 13. He stood afar off. The humble don't feel like they're better than others. If you're truly humble, you don't assume anything with regard to others. He's standing afar off. I'm not, I'm not worthy. This is not some kind of false humility or a bad sense of, of uh, personal identity. This is, this is not, I'm not worthy because of my humanity. I'm not worthy because of my unrighteous reality. I'm at fault. His posture, he's unwilling to look up. He's not only just humbled standing afar off before others. He's humbled before God. Thirdly, he's humbled before himself. He humbled himself by beating his breast. It's it's a sinner beating his breast saying, my heart's not righteous. I'm not holy. He smote upon his breast and an indignation for his sin. He, he wanted to acknowledge this, this part of me is broken. He's humbling himself. David smote himself in 2 Samuel 24, 10, when he wrongly numbered the people of Israel. The Bible says he smote his breast. It was just a common expression for saying, I am humbling myself because inwardly I recognize my sinfulness and my wickedness. He's taking real responsibility. God, be merciful. That's his only prayer. Be merciful to me. And I love this definite article, the sinner. I'm the one at fault. I'm the one responsible. I'm the chief one. I'm to be held accountable. I am worthy of blame. I am worthy of punishment. And I, the sinner, me, admitting my condition, I need mercy. And so what does humility do? 
it admits fault and failure. It acknowledges sin and a healthy sorrow, humble before men, not standing afar off, humble before God, not wanting to look up, humble in myself. I'm humble before God. Now, listen, this is godly sorrow, which produces repentance without regret. Humility. This is James chapter 4. Uh, go back to James chapter 4. And this is what we saw when we were there. Humility. Verse 6, God is opposed to the proud, gives grace to the humble, submit to God, resist the devil, he'll flee from you, draw near to God, he will draw near to you, cleanse your hands, you sinners, purify your hearts, you double-minded. And look at verse 9, be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. Why? Because you recognize your sinfulness. Remember, this passage starts out by saying you're worldly, you're friends of the world. You're not faithful friends of God. Confess your sinfulness in your worldliness. Be miserable, be mourn, be brokenhearted. Look at verse 10. Let your humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. Humble yourself how? By admitting fault and owning your sin and being repentant and sorry. Humble yourselves. We humble ourselves when we admit our failure to God. Listen, here's what pride does. It denies responsibility. Pride looks at the, the faults of others. That's what the Pharisee did. It doesn't own its own faults. It's always blame shifting. It's always blame reflecting. It's not sin owning. This man, the tax gatherer, owned his failure, admitted his wrong, accepted responsibility. It broke his heart. It humbled him before God. And like Job, he repented, not in sackcloth and ashes, but with a prayer to say, be merciful to me. I'm a sinner. Let me tell you what proud people do. They don't admit responsibility. They don't own their sin. They don't own their faults. They, they see faults in everyone else. They accept no responsibility for themselves. Humble yourself by admitting, not denying. And then Matthew 23, number five. And I'm coming to the home stretch, and I'll end with a very powerful uh, illustration and personification of what true humility looks like. This is Matthew chapter 23. And humble yourself, fifthly, by serving instead of receiving. Serving instead of receiving. This is another parable which Jesus tells in Matthew chapter 23. And this is verses 1 through 12. And he's, Jesus is talking to the crowds and to the disciples saying, the scribes and the Pharisees, actually it's not a parable, this is a straight declaration. The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. They've put themselves in a, in a prominent position as if they're teachers of the law, which is not a bad thing to teach the law. But in the teaching of the law, verse 3, therefore, all that they tell you do and observe, in other words, what they're saying is true because it's the law of Moses, but do, do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. They're self-righteous and they're hypocritical. Verse 4, they tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. But they do, in other words, they're not 
They're putting responsibility on others, but they're not willing to help. They're, they're not serving. They're seeking. Verse 5, but they do all their deeds to be noticed by men. That's what pride does. They broaden their phylacteries, and this is their religious garments and the accoutrements thereof. They lengthen the tassels of their garments, the, the look at me, the, the attention-seeking, religious attention-seeking. Whatever they perceive will elevate them by way of their clothing and attire. Verse 6, they love the place of honor at the banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues, the VIP seating. And they love the respectful greetings in the marketplaces, being called rabbi by men. Which is which is teacher or master? It's an expression of someone who's special and is to be elevated. They like that. They want to receive honor. They want to receive adoration. They want to receive benefit rather than give benefit. Matthew chapter twenty three continues, verse eight: Do not be called rabbi. For one is your teacher, and you are all brothers. And the way I take that to be in the context of humility is don't assign or assume titles of reverence and respect, which give too much honor or authority to man. Don't don't act like you are a person deserving of a title. Uh, there's one father that belongs to God. Don't take the role and attention of the true teacher, father, and master. Don't do that. And don't diminish the role and status of a a fellow believer. We're all brothers. Humility lifts itself up, or excuse me, pride lifts itself up. Humility sees itself properly. Verse 10, do not be called leaders for there's one leader that is Christ, but the greatest among you, here's the bottom line, not receiving, but serving, giving. But the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled. Whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. Don't take the role or attention of of God. Don't diminish the role and status of fellow believers. Don't take titles. Don't, Don't elevate yourself to receive things, but behave as a servant, one committed out of humility to do things, to elevate and support others, to call attention to them or call attention to him, not to yourself. Humble yourself by serving, not receiving, by blessing, not benefiting. Honor the Lord by honoring those on behalf of the Lord. The greatest shall be your servant. Humility is a choice you make to serve, not a gift you receive. And then finally, I'm just going to read this passage, but I want to go back to the archetype. This is Philippians chapter 2. And this is the sixth thing. Humble yourself by losing instead of gaining. By sacrificing and serving. Philippians chapter 2, and I'll conclude with this because we're out of time. Humble yourself by having this attitude in you. Verse 5, have this attitude in yourselves. Chapter 2, Philippians, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Have this attitude as a present tense verb. It's an everyday, throughout-the-day expression. 
It's active. It's meaning this is a choice you make. It's the imperative. It's not optional. Have this attitude, this mindset. I used to say to my family, attitude is everything. Have this attitude, which was also in Christ Jesus. Here's the ultimate example of humbling yourself. Who, although he existed in the form of God, with the very nature of God, morphe of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, all of the prerogatives and privileges that were his, he didn't hang on to them. But verse 7, he emptied himself of what? Not of his divinity, but of his privilege and prerogatives as divinity. He made a choice because humility does not hang on to position or privilege that is deserved or desired. Jesus is at the height of his glory, and he emptied himself of all of the divine prerogatives of divine glory. And he emptied himself of those privileges. Why or how? By taking the form of a bonds, the nature of a slave, a bondservant slave, doulos, suborting his own rights to serve the needs of another. Humility will exchange privilege personal benefit and blessing, profit in order to obey God and promote the betterment of others. Jesus emptied himself. That was a choice. And being found in the appearance of a man, verse 8, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In other words, he was going to serve and he was going to sacrifice for the betterment of others at his own expense. He didn't hang on to the rightly deserved privileges and prerogatives. He released that. That's what humility does. It humbles itself. It considers the needs of others as more important than itself. Someone has said that was a stupendous condescension. His prior existence so lofty that it was an all, it was an all but infinite descent to become a man and serve men, in order to express humility that blessed men who would know by faith the righteousness of God and the goodness of God through His sacrifice. I was doing some reading, and I'll close with this illustration. And therefore, God highly exalted him because he humbled himself by serving that way, by losing rather than gaining, by releasing rather than grasping. And God highly exalted him, giving him a name that is above every name. I was trying to think of a, an illustration that would give you just a flavor, a taste of what humility would look like in the magnitude and measure that is reflected in Philippians chapter 2, which is really infinite. It's incomprehensible. Queen Elizabeth, she's reigned 68 years as the monarch of Britain, the oldest reigning monarch in British history. Imagine her, and let me talk a little bit about her wealth and her position, her privileges. Number one, she doesn't have to have a driver's license or a passport. She doesn't need either. She has her own personal cash machine in the basement of Buckingham Palace. She's immune from prosecution. She can't be arrested. She owns a royal train. 
She has and is the owner of a 530 carat, 530 carat largest clear cut diamond in the world. 530 carats. She owns half of the United Kingdom's shoreline. She is the owner of all fishes royale, all whales, all porpoises, all dolphins living in UK waters belong to the queen. She pays no tax. She's the owner of all wild swans, 5,300 breeding pairs. All of them belong to the Queen of England. She owns a mile and a quarter of Regent Street, which is like our Rodeo Drive here in Beverly Hills. She owns the Tower of London, the Crown Jewels. She has a royal train. She has six royal residences. Buckingham Palace has 775 rooms. She owns a $10 million car collection. She has a winning team of race horses. She has her own poet. She's head of the Church of England. She has 150,000 works of art. Imagine Queen Elizabeth with all of that saying, in order to serve the needs of British citizens, I'm going to step away from all of that to become a homeless person, to reach homeless people, to take my assets and invest them for their blessing and benefit. I could think of no realistic, in our world, illustration of the mammoth choice that humility made in order to serve the betterment of others. Humility is willing to serve and sacrifice out of love in order to provide what is best for those that they engage. Proverbs 29, 23, a man's pride will bring him low, but a humble spirit will obtain honor. And true humility models Christ-like attitude and action, not hanging on to what you deserve, but investing it. I'm a parent. I have privilege. I have prerogative. Humility in serving those in my home, serving those who work under me. Humility trades a lot in order that others can have a lot. I'm praying that we will humble ourselves to the end that God is honored, people are blessed, and God is released to bring blessing to us. Father, I thank you this morning for the treasure of your word. And as we finish this series on humbling ourselves, would you help us to practically and actively and daily make choices to acknowledge you and to remember who you are and remember who we are, to acknowledge you as the giver of our gifts, to acknowledge others by choosing the the least, not the best, and giving them first choice, by admitting when we're at fault, not denying responsibility, by serving others, not inviting honor and accolade and service, and Lord, by losing, not gaining, so that others might enjoy blessing and benefit. Lord, would you help us to humble ourselves so that you don't have to humble us? Lord, that's my prayer to the honor and glory of Jesus Christ and the blessing of those that we serve and live with. In his name I pray, amen. All right.
Cornerstone, God bless you. I have a, hope you have a great Sunday. Enjoy Pastor John. He's up today live, and so I pray that you'll enjoy that. God bless you.